0: Uh, If you are new to North Roanoke Baptist Church, we believe that God has spoken to us authoritatively, finally, definitively, uh, through His Son by giving us His Word, the Bible. And we work our way systematically through the Bible. Right now we're in the book of Hebrews, and we're in the second chapter of Hebrews. So if you have not been with us in the past, you just need to know that's where we are. We're in Hebrews chapter 2, verse 14, and the book of Hebrews is written to a church which is facing adversity for their faithfulness to Jesus Christ. It's written to a church facing adversity for their faithfulness to Jesus Christ. And the, the goal of the book is that we would remain faithful and that we would consider what is at stake if we don't. Right? Those those who have the real thing, even under the pressures of temptation and suffering, they stand firm. They stay faithful to the Lord Jesus Christ, who is faithful to secure their salvation. And we break into verse 14 of chapter 2, and we learn how it is that Jesus secures our salvation, and why it is that Jesus had to become a man, that, that God, the Son, had to become Jesus in the flesh. So would you, if you would, join me in reading God's Word, beginning in chapter 2, verse 14. Hear now the word of the Lord. Therefore, since the children... And that's referring back to the children mentioned in verse 13, the children that God gives to Jesus as a reward of his obedience in going to the cross to save them. Therefore, since the children, that sinners saved by faith in Christ, since those children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise also partook of the same, that through death he might render powerless him who had the power of death, that is, the devil. And might free those who, through fear of death, were subject to slavery all their lives. For assuredly, he does not give help to angels, but gives help to the descendant of Abraham. Therefore, he had to be made like his brethren in all things, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God, to make propitiation for the sins of the people." For since he himself was tempted in that which he has suffered, he is able to come to the aid of those who are tempted. Would you bow with me? Lord, we thank you that you are able to help us. God, that where we are weak, you are strong. And that in the face of adversity and trial and temptation, you are there. God, help us to worship well this morning by considering afresh who you are and what you've done in order to rescue us. We ask it in Jesus name. Amen. Last week we began to see that the son of God had to become a man in order to save human sinners. The assumption of our humanity is known by Jesus or by the son of God is known as the doctrine of the incarnation. The incarnation of Jesus didn't happen just when he was born like we think about Christmas, we think about, wow, Jesus was born. That's amazing. But it actually happened nine months earlier when he was conceived in the virgin's womb. So from embryo to adult human being, God knows human existence because he became a man. It doesn't mean that he subtracted his deity in order to become a man. He simply added our humanity to his deities, fully God and fully man. And he did this so that sinful men could be reconciled to a holy God. But in a world that hates the idea that we needed God to do something for us that we couldn't do for ourselves, the author of Hebrews is equipping us with the understanding of why it is that Jesus had to become a man. And so this morning we see three aspects of why it is that Jesus assumed our humanity, why the Son of God added our humanity to His being in order to rescue sinners. First, He did it to conquer our true enemies through His death. The only way for a human being to die is for Him to be a human being. Secondly, He did it to deal with our sins as a merciful and faithful high priest. And finally, He did it to help us remain faithful When following him is difficult, the whole context of this book is about following Jesus when it's not easy. And if if you're not that old yet, uh, maybe you haven't encountered a time when following Jesus is not easy. But the promise of the gospel is that those who follow Jesus will endure hardship and adversity and persecution for the sake of righteousness. That at some point, it will be difficult to follow Jesus. And the book of Hebrews is written to equip us to stay faithful to Jesus, even when it's hard. So, first I want to establish that Jesus did, in fact, take partake in our humanity. That's the promise and the truth that we see in verse 14. Although He is God from eternity past, which we saw in chapter 1, Jesus is also fully human, which is clearly articulated in chapter 2. What's interesting is it says in verse 14, "...since the children share..." And that word is in the perfect tense in the Greek, which means they have shared and will keep on sharing in humanity. Which, by the way, this one verse cuts the cords of evolution. People have always been people, the Bible says. They were never sort of monkeys and sort of people and somewhere in between. They were just people. God made people. And people have always been people. They always will be people they're people. Are y- y'all clear? All right. So people are people. But Jesus, who is given his name and his birth, has not always been a person. He's always been God, but all, not always been a person. So he had to come down. He was sent as an apostle from heaven, as we'll learn next week, in order to take on our humanity, in order to partake in, to participate in our humanity. For God to give flesh and blood children to Jesus, they had to be rescued by someone who was flesh and blood, so Jesus came and did it. The humanity that we have, that we've always had a share in, is a humanity that Jesus partook fully of when he was conceived in Mary's womb. This this is important. This means Jesus is not some sort of third thing. He's not some alien oddball, some weird mix of two natures. When we think about Jesus, sometimes we think about like, well, he's God and he's got like, you know, Superman under his, uh, under his, he's like Clark Kent, right? And he's not playing fair. That's not how Jesus was. He obeyed as a man fully and faithfully to the Father because we needed someone to obey where we failed. Jesus is both fully God and fully man with no mixture or division or alteration or confusion of his two natures. He is human and and divine, and he is in the one person, Jesus Christ, which means that Jesus lived as a man in perfect obedience to the Father, and he endured the suffering and pain of human death for us. Brother Paul, is everything all right? You sure? Okay. So Jesus, God of God, becomes a man to rescue sinners, which is our first point. Jesus partook in our humanity To conquer our true enemies through His death. Because Jesus, the perfectly righteous Lamb of God, died. And because God raised Him from death on the third day, Jesus has beaten the devil at His own game. I love that. Jesus has beaten the devil at His own game. By dying a human death, He rendered powerless The one who had the power of death. Do you see that in verse 14? The devil had a power that Jesus canceled by dying. He threw himself on the cross. He allowed himself to die so that the power that Satan had could be ripped away from him. Now, some of you are saying, well, I thought God had all power. God has ultimate power. And God understood that death would come because of sin, but Satan gained his power when he slithered into the garden and he seduced humanity to rebel against God. Do you remember what Satan said to Adam and Eve? He said, "If you eat of the fruit, you will surely what? Not die." He deceived Adam and Eve so that he could bring death into the world. And through this deception, Adam and Eve caved to their rebellious desires and they entered into death. And they did so immediately. Some of you are like, well, Adam and Eve didn't die. They just checked out and went to the wilderness. That is death. Death is to be separated from the favorable presence of God. In the day they ate of the fruit, they were cast out of the garden and into death where they had to get their food by the sweat of their brow and having babies was difficult and it was a miserable existence. And this is exactly what Satan wanted to do. He came to steal and kill and destroy. And he wants to do that in your life. But in Christ, that power is ripped out of the hands of Satan because Jesus has already died the death that we deserve. As we saw last week, death prevents us from having the dominion that we were intended to have in the world. When sinners die in their sin, they remain in everlasting death, separated from the love of God and without a place in the world to come. Satan is our enemy. He prowls around like a lion, seeking someone to devour, 1 Peter 5.8. Moler summarizes his work in this way. He's a liar, he's a deceiver, he's a destroyer, and he's a tempter. Satan is focused on opposing God's plan and his purposes, and he's focused on resisting the glory of Christ and his strategy Is death. But in an amazing twist. God overcomes Satan power of death by coming to die. Do you remember in the gospels how hard it was for Jesus' enemies to get him to die? Like in the very beginning of Mark, they want to destroy him. They want to take him out. But it's not his time yet. Jesus has to render obedience to the Father and get to the cross on exactly the Father's timeline. And so it isn't until the very end. Do you remember when Satan enters Judas? Satan himself takes over. And he enters into Judas and Judas betrays his master. He betrays his friend. And he betrays him to death. And it looks like Satan's going to win. But through Jesus' death, he becomes victorious over the evil one and shares his victory who all will trust in him because on the third day he didn't stay dead. He was risen from the grave. And because Christ is raised from the dead, Satan has no power to separate you from God in your death if you give your life to Christ now and let his death count in your place. He renders Satan powerless over death. Now, while Satan has lost that power, I-, I need to be pastorally accurate and let you know that Satan is still active for a little bit longer. He's still afflicting the church. He's still making a mess out of the situation in Honduras and us trying to get Brian Paul Hamas and his wife, Kenny, home. God still allows, for, for sometimes for reasons we don't know, But he still allows Satan to to move move about and have his way sometimes. Why? To sift us or to afflict us like like Peter or like Job. It's one thing to say you're going to be faithful to Jesus in all things. It's another thing to do it. And sometimes God will allow Satan to expose your weaknesses and your vulnerabilities so that you will rely on Jesus even more. When you you bump into suffering and temptation and hardship, you're going to go one way or the other. And like in Hebrews, when governments threaten us or cancer consumes us or failure flattens us, we still have hope because in death, Satan's accusations don't have any standing before a holy God because the blood of Jesus pleases your case in your place. So you can handle the adversity now because a day is coming where Satan will have no say in your life. And this, as we see in verse 15, gives us freedom from the slavery that comes through the fear of death. Did you know that one out of every one person dies? It's a statistical fact. And without the gospel, we would still be enslaved, dominated by serving the fear of death. People do all, things, all sorts of things to try and cheat death. I'm going to go to the gym more. I'm going to get a new diet. I'm not going to eat carbs. God help you. <laughs> carbs are good. Man shall not live by bread alone, but it's not a bad place to start. <laughs> bread is good. Go to Logan's. Get some rolls. Um, people are enslaved to the fear of death. The curse of sin is death. Physical death is the door to the judgment of God. The fear of death, do you see that? It enslaves people all their lives. You want to know how I know this is true? People don't don't go to funerals anymore. 200 years ago, people were surrounded by death. They, They buried their own. They had to think about it all the time. And now it's so clinical, we send them to the hospital and we send them to the home and we have somebody else come in and we almost never think about death. It's good to think about death. The Psalms tell us to number our days. We don't have a lot of time, church. And people are dying all around us. And no matter what their lives look like on the outside, they are dominated by the fear of death. People will tell you they aren't afraid of death. They'll be brave. They'll act like they aren't afraid, but their denial doesn't change their reality. One of the reasons that our society is so busy is they're busy trying to drown out the fear of death. They're posting their pretty pictures on Instagram and Facebook. Their next success is out there for everybody to see. They're researching their next diet plan. They're always doing something, but seldom contemplating death. Some drown it out with their career, some with education, some with kids, vacations, businesses, and a host of other wonderful things. But they never get around to knowing the best thing, which is having a relationship with Jesus Christ who abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel, 2 Timothy 1, verse 10. There's nothing greater than knowing that Jesus Christ has died in your place, and if He's died in your place, there's no fear in death. Death is the most fearful thing that there is without the gospel. And Satan retains this power of death wherever the gospel is not proclaimed. Did you notice it said that he might render Satan powerless? It's conditional. Satan, Satan has been rendered powerless by the death of Jesus for those who hear about Jesus and trust in him. But for those who never hear, who those who never have the opportunity, Satan still has the power of death. And death is a fearful thing if you don't know Christ. So let me ask you a question. What do you really want, North Roanoke Baptist Church? Do you want a tidy society? Or do you want to turn the world upside down with the gospel? Because some of the prayers that I hear Christians pray sound like they just want to go back to the 1950s with grandma and apple pie and family around the table and beautiful Thanksgivings where everything's just plastic and great on the outside, but on the inside people are dying and going to hell. If God answered your prayers, what would happen? Would everybody be in church on Sunday? No speeding, no cursing in public. Every lawn looking perfect. No bad calls at the game. No angry fans at the ball field. Children listening to their parents and teachers perfectly. Laws and tax policies reflecting God's design for marriage and families. No abuse, no abortion. Did you know we could have all of that and people could still die and bust hell wide open? We can get a clean society back and people can go to hell. Or we can pray about what really matters that those people who are dying and struggling and suffering and enslaved to the power of death would encounter Christ and the gospel and give their lives to Him and have their world changed upside down. I don't want a tidy society. I want a society that is turned upside down by Jesus Christ. The gospel is the good news Jesus took of our flesh and blood and gave his blood in death because the price of sin had to be paid, and the price is death. Satan is powerless to reverse your status if you trust in Jesus. If you know the hope of the gospel this morning, you can say with Paul, death is swallowed up in victory. Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? No angel can say that, which is what he says in verse 16. Remember this whole big section is Jesus is better than the angels. Why is he better than the angels? Well, he's better than the angels because he became a man to rescue sinful men and women. And no angel could rescue us. No angel knows what it's like to be helped by God in this way for him to come down in order to help us. And that word help means to be laid hold of or to be seized by someone greater than ourselves. Did you know that when you give your life to Christ, God is at work and He is taking your hand and He is seizing you out of death and raising you up into life? And when God seizes you, when He helps you in that way, He never lets go. He never gives you Those are the children, the descendants of Abraham. Those who call upon the name of the Lord when it doesn't make sense. Those who, like Abraham, go outside. God says, go outside and look at the stars. You're going to have more sons than that through one son. The promise is coming through Jesus. And you're going to have a whole family of children who've been blessed by this one son. And do you remember what the Bible says? Abraham believed God. And God counted it to him as righteousness. You can believe in the Son That Abraham was promised was coming and have the righteousness of God through the death of Christ in your place. Jesus, through his death, transformed death from a door to damnation into a door of deliverance unto life everlasting in the world to come. Secondly, Jesus partook in our humanity to deal with our sins as a merciful and faithful high priest. In verse 17 we are introduced to Jesus as high priest. The book of Hebrews is all about Jesus being our high priest. There's no other book in the New Testament that calls Jesus the high priest, but Hebrews does it for six chapters, from chapter 4 to chapter 10. And verse 17 is setting up this next idea that Jesus is our high priest with sort of like a little introduction. And then I'm going to take a chapter interlude, and then in chapter 4 I'm going to come back to it and hit it really hard. Ellingsworth says this, verse 17 is the nerve center of the epistle because it introduces Jesus as high priest as well as his sacrifice to atone for sins. The word hence or therefore in verse 17 tells us what Jesus did to disarm Satan and destroy the enslaving power of death is related to his role as high priest. A priest represents men, people, before God. It would be pointless for Jesus to come and offer Himself as a sacrifice for sinners if God was not going to accept His sacrifice or recognize it as valid. So Jesus isn't just the sacrifice, He's the qualified high priest to be our representative before God. In the Old Testament, the high priest went into the Holy of Holies on the Day of Atonement. The Holy of Holies is the innermost portion of the temple, of the sanctuary, where sacrifices were offered To God, the animal was killed or sacrificed in the place of people who sinned. But the sacrifices of animals could not satisfy the price of human sin. Jesus had to come and pay the price with his own blood. We needed a priest who would make a better offering and be a better representative. A merciful and faithful high priest. For this reason, Jesus had to be made like his brethren in all things. Do you see that in verse 17? Verse 17. Do you see the words had to be? Have you ever wondered, was there another way for God to save me? Was there another way for God to get his people? And the answer is no. He had to be made like us. The salvation that we have through Christ could only come by way of him becoming a man. By becoming like us, Jesus is able to be a merciful and faithful high priest. To be merciful means to be compassionate and understanding toward people. Do you remember the priests in the Old Testament? For those of you who are familiar with your Old Testament, you remember the priests were very different than the rest of the Israelites. Right? They didn't get, they didn't get a, a, a piece of land in the land. They didn't really work in the way that other people worked. People would bring their offerings to the priests, and the priests would get the best of the meal, representing as though the best was going to God they had a very different existence than their brothers and by the time that Jesus comes they are using their position to harm people widows they're extorting people and harming the poor and they are using their their priestly position to do the exact opposite of what God wants to do in your life through Jesus Christ And so Jesus was made like his brothers. He didn't stand over us. He didn't go ha, ha, ha. He came down into the muck and the mire of human existence, was even born in a feed trough, so he could rescue you, so he could identify with you. Jesus is not a high priest who doesn't understand what life is like. He saves you personally. He jumps into the fray. He eats with sinners, weeps at the death of his friend, and dies on a cross so that he can be merciful toward you by taking on himself what you deserved. When we are tempted to ask, Why God? Or God, do you even understand what I'm going through right now? Look to the cross of Christ and know that the answer is 100% yes. And through such a merciful Savior, God grants you a forgiveness that you cannot imagine and a peace that you absolutely do not deserve. By becoming like us, Jesus is merciful towards sinners, but He's also faithful to God in things pertaining to God. Though Jesus faced great pressure and temptation to quit, In the face of suffering, He remained faithful to His Father so that He could make propitiation for the sins of His people. That big word, propitiation, means atonement or satisfaction. He delivers us from our sins. This is more, church, than forgiveness. When we present the gospel so often, we're like, if you'll come to Jesus, your sins will be forgiven. And that's true. But the only way they can be forgiven is if they are first paid for. Somebody had to pay the price of sin in human death. If God just forgave sinners as though their sin did not demand a payment and justice and a verdict, then God would not be righteous or just. Christ had to die in order for the justice and righteousness of God to be maintained so that we could be forgiven. Propitiation means that Jesus became a man to take on Himself God's rightful wrath and punishment for our sin. Some people don't like that. They like a God that's all love and hunky-dory and He understands me and He wants me to have my best life now and just do whatever I want. It doesn't matter what I do today or tomorrow. That's not God. Sin demands a verdict. And the verdict and the price has been paid by Christ. He has declared you guilty and Christ Himself paid your price in full that you could have life and forgiveness through Christ. If we think forgiveness was easy, we don't understand the gospel. As Moeller writes, at the cross, God poured out His wrath against sinners on Jesus, satisfying God's demand for just punishment of sin. God's wrath was satisfied, and His righteousness was vindicated by the death of Jesus. In Christ, do you hear that? The wrath of God is satisfied. And the love of God is available. John says this, in this is love. Not that we love God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Because the sacrifice of Jesus satisfies forever and in full the debt of death that we owed for our sin, that means death cannot hold us. And as our high priest, get this, Jesus keeps on making propitiation for our sin. It's in the present tense. You say, what does that mean? It means your past sins, your present sins, and your future sins are covered by the blood of Jesus Romans says this, who is the one who condemns? Christ Jesus is he who died. rather, Yes, rather, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who also intercedes for us. When your grandmother gets Alzheimer's and she's saying crazy things that don't make sense and make you embarrassed, if she has given her life to Jesus, those sins are still covered by the blood of Jesus. He's still pleading, he's still praying the once for all sacrifice that he made on the cross, that it would count for you, for what you did in the past, what you did this morning that you forgot about, what you said in the car when you were angry because you were five minutes late to church, and what you will still yet do, because you need Jesus to take your place, he'll do it. This morning... If you belong to Christ, your sins, past, present, and future, are cleansed by the blood of Jesus, the one who absorbed God's wrath in full, the one who already paid the price of your sin with his own blood. But if you don't belong to Jesus, the fiery wrath of God against your sin is still coming full bore down on you. The only place in the world where you can avoid the wrath of God is in Christ. And it's high time, if you're not sure, that today you make sure that you avoid the fiery wrath of God so that death would not have a hold on you and you could live free as He intended you to live for the glory of Christ until He comes. And finally, Jesus partook in our humanity to help us remain faithful when following Him is difficult. It's one thing to know that our death is covered. It's one thing to know that Satan won't have my soul in the last day of judgment. But it's another thing to live it out in the here and now. In verse 18, we see the heart of a pastor for his people shining through. He has told us what Jesus accomplished for the children of God by becoming a man. He's told us that our salvation is sure and that Satan can't touch it. But what do we do right now? What do we do when we get a diagnosis that's tough? What do we do when I don't get promoted because I'm, not a, because I'm a crazy Christian guy in the workplace? We don't just look ahead to the day that Christ returns and calls us home, we also look back to the cross. Moeller says this, the Christian faith continuously alternates between looking backward and looking forward. In verse 18, the author is saying something like this, look, I know that what you're facing isn't easy, and I'm not going to lie to you and tell you all your problems melt away just because you got your theology right about the atonement. Right belief in Jesus gives you the reason to remain faithful in a world that's opposed to Him, but our flesh is weak. And when adversity and trial and suffering come, we need help. And do you see the promise of verse 18? He is able to help you. That doesn't mean in the future He can help you right now. The promise of verse 18 is that when we look back to the cross and we look at the life of Jesus and we ask Him to help us, then the Spirit of God supernaturally gives us the help of Christ Himself in our everyday lives. Jesus hasn't just faced any old temptation, by the way. Do you see it in verse 18? He faced the temptation that comes through suffering. Have you ever thought about how tempted Jesus was? If you could be anywhere in the world you wanted to be right now, other than here, it's okay, I give you permission to follow me on this little thought experiment. The beach, the Caribbean, cruise ship, big old T-bone, Logan's with that roll. If you could be anywhere in the world right now and stop facing the suffering of this sermon, Just kidding. If you were Jesus, you could do it. On the way to Calvary's Hill, he's still God. He could have created an alternate universe, gone and lived there. But he didn't. You talk about temptation, to have the power to do whatever you want to do and instead continue to follow the Father obediently up Calvary's hill so that He can save you, that's temptation. And the same power by which He did not give up and just do something else on the way to the cross to take the nails and the scars for you, that same power is the power that He will give to you to stay faithful in the face of whatever adversity is trying to take you down. We all want to avoid suffering, and that is completely understandable. But suffering is a tool in the hands of God that He uses to confirm your salvation. God uses suffering in the life of a believer to confirm their salvation. When the trials come, do we get angry and bitter and complain, or do we look back to the cross and look to Jesus for comfort and hope and purpose and power and our identity in the storm? Oswald Chambers said this, we all know people who have been made much meaner and more irritable and more intolerable to live with by suffering. It is not right to say that all suffering perfects. It is only one type of person who is perfected by suffering, the one who accepts the call of God in Christ Jesus. And and folks, Jesus suffered. His brothers rejected Him and called Him crazy. But he stayed faithful knowing that he would be able to bring you into his family. When Jesus had no place to call home, he laid his head wherever someone would open their home. When he was without food for 40 days in the wilderness and Satan tempted him to turn the rock into bread, he refused a quick and convenient solution to his hunger because his food was to do the will of the Father who sent him. When he faced the weight of bearing your sin, he prayed, not my will, but the Father's will be done. When his friend betrayed him, he stayed faithful to the end. When they shouted, crucify him, he did not call more than 12 legions of angels to rescue him, but he remained silent like a lamb led to the slaughter. So that he could save sinners. Jesus can help you when life gets tough. If you're tempted to abandon Jesus this morning. I don't know what's going on in your life. I don't know who passed away. I don't know what's going on at work. I don't know what's going on in your marriage and your parenting. But if you are facing temptation to leave behind the gospel. Don't forget that Jesus has already faced down everything you face. And he can help you. The word aid The the word aid means to help or to rescue. To help or to rescue. And some of you this morning, you've given your life to Christ, but you need afresh to be helped and rescued by Christ. I don't know what's going on in your life, but you you need Him to to rescue you and to awaken you afresh to the purposes and the plan of God. In Mark chapter 9, there's a story about a dad whose son is possessed by demons. You remember that story? I mean, the demons are just afflicting him and terrorizing him and making his life in utter misery. And the dad comes to Jesus and he says, Jesus, if you can help my boy, please help him. And you remember what Jesus says? If I can. If I can. And some of you this morning are right there. You're succumbing to the temptation and failing to look to the cross where you can find help. And if Jesus himself were standing before you, you might say, Jesus, if you can help me out, I'd appreciate it. And Jesus would stand before you right now and say, if I can. I can help you. I can help you get up. I can help you endure. I can help you persevere. Look to the cross. Call upon the Spirit of God to be your aid. And do you remember what the man says, the father says in response to Jesus? He says, Lord, I believe. (laughs) Help my unbelief. Failure exposes our failure to believe. Perhaps this morning, God has revealed an area of your life where your faith needs to be strengthened. Whatever you're facing, look to Jesus who became like you to liberate you from the fear of death. And who now will help you on the basis of what he has faced for you. This morning, may our prayer be in the face of whatever it is that seeks to tear us down. Jesus, thank you for your sacrifice. Lord, I believe. Help my unbelief. Would you bow with me? Lord Jesus, you are present in this room, you are ready. To provide divine aid to the brothers and sisters, to your children who are floundering in their faith, who are faltering, who are, are near stumbling. God, I pray that you would strengthen them today and give them boldness if necessary, God. If, if, they, if they would want to, to come and, and call upon your name afresh this morning, even, even here at the front. And God, for those who don't yet know you, who are still enslaved by the fear of death. God, death is coming quickly. And I pray, I pray, Lord Jesus, that you would free them this day from the fear of death, that you would cancel Satan's power of death in their life, and that you would grant them life everlasting through the propitiating sacrifice of Jesus Christ, our Lord, our King, our Savior, and your Son. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.